0: You're listening, you're listening.
1: Welcome to Terra Informa. And welcome to the Anthropocene, a short series about the politics and emotions complicating the proposal made by many scientists to name this geological epoch the Anthropocene. This is part two emotions in an apocalypse. You can find part one at Terra Informa wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Amanda
0: and I'm Dylan. We will be your guides today. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community radio station in Amiskwichi or Edmonton, Alberta. We are situated on Treaty 6 territory, the territory of the Cree, Métis, Nakota Sioux, Salto, Nisitapi, Dene, and other First Peoples.
1: Before we dive in, we would also like to recognize the incredible global scope of the topic at hand, a new geological epoch, and the fact that we, along with our interviewees, represent a small handful of experiences out of a roughly eight billion. Our ideas and opinions are rooted in our unique experiences, places, and time.
0: Before we jump into part two, here's a quick recap of episode one.
2: We've reached the saturation point and we're hitting the ceiling of the biophysical capacity where we can no longer exclude destabilizing the entire Earth system.
0: One of the reasons that the Anthropocene has been criticized as a name for an epoch is that it's very anthropocentric, it's very (laughs) focused on humans in a time when we, it suggests that we should be focused on On the bigger picture The bigger picture <laughs> and other beings and I really appreciate it. So the growth of the economy is entirely financed
2: through the consumption of nature We are undermining the biophysical basis of our own existence
3: Obviously, Indigenous people think it's 1492 It's, it's aligned with settler colonialism It's not only a disruption of relations between humans but with the quote-unquote natural world So for us, that's the that's the crux I don't know that the word Anthropocene would accurately capture that.
1: Though we think it's important to pay attention to the science of climate change and species extinction, we heard from many guests who argue that these horrifying realities should not simply be understood as caused by all humans equally or as an inevitable result of human nature.
0: The Capitalocene, Eurocene, thanatocene, and Elachistocene, amongst other names, are all alternatives to the Anthropocene, reminding us that capitalism, empire, slavery, colonization, and the American war machine are all implicated in the ongoing destruction and pollution of ecosystems and human communities. This episode, we're going to look at our personal and societal response and avoidance of emotions evoked by climate change, extinction, and the Anthropocene narrative. We will open up our guilt, self-hatred, despair, anger, and grief.
1: Don't forget hope and courage.
0: But this won't be easy. So we want to start with our gratitude for all the incredible diverse life that's left, for each other, for Treaty 6, and the privilege of inhabiting this native land, and for you, dear listener, for embarking on this journey with us.
1: Studying all of this, Dylan and I found ourselves left with a tangle of difficult emotions, and we also found that we weren't alone.
0: Here's our friend Kaylee speaking to how she felt when learning about the Anthropocene in grad school.
4: It's just been It's been a really emotional experience for me in trying to figure it out. And um, I also recognize that our society is very scared of emotions. They do not like to talk about emotions. So even sometimes when I try and bring it up with people who are not ready to have this conversation because they have their own unaddressed like issues with expressing emotion. um, They're like, I don't want to talk about this. Or like, no, let's just jump to action. Just like, "Okay," but like that emotional space is also preventing us from moving forward.
0: And as Nathan Kowalski reminds us, facing the true scale of the trouble with our emotions can hurt. In, oh, in yeah. talking about all this, how do you
2: feel? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm barely holding it together. I I, I don't. I guess students are too. Uh, this is something I forget that many students are barely hanging in there. But um, I'm barely hanging in there myself. I feel like I need to not think about it because otherwise I will emotionally collapse. It feels desperately terrifying and hopeless for me because even though I know that it is contingent, that this is the way the world is, I also know that we have built infrastructure that is both intellectual infrastructure and physical infrastructure that commits us in a lot of ways to continuing going in this way. And it's incredibly difficult to stop that kind of social momentum. And I don't know how to change the political organization of things. I don't know how to have a different economy. I don't know any of these things. And so I just feel like it will just keep on going and nothing will get better. And we will literally burn ourselves to a crisp and my children will die way before their lifespan should end. So I feel deeply depressed about the Anthropocene and the only way I can cope about it is to pretend life goes on as normal for me in my little comfortable life that I am privileged to lead, which is very inauthentic of me.
0: The majority of the population in Canada don't deny what's happening but we don't really feel it, so many don't take it as real at least compared to paying rent or buying groceries. Climate change and the ecological crisis is bad we know, but it's not as immediate as the rest of life's demands. So we psychologically numb ourselves, or avoid it, or minimize it. We certainly don't bring it up at parties.
2: And my kids go, Dad, are we going to die? And I have to lie to them. And I'm like, oh no, everything will be fine, sweeties. Um, there's some problems. I, I, I feel terrible lying to them, and I feel terrible telling them the truth. So emotionally, it's devastating. So that's the only way I can deal with it.
0: How often do you talk about that?
2: (laughs) Not too often. Number one, it's difficult to talk about because it hurts to admit the stuff stuff to you. One of the ways to not feel that pain is to not tell yourself that, oh yeah, I feel this way. So I don't often talk about it. And uh, I guess uh, there's not a lot of reasons why I would eventually just kind of just lay that out for people. Nobody asks me. I don't feel like dumping that on other people unexpectedly. I don't have a lot of conversations with people who are like, hey, so, how's the Anthropocene treating you these days? It doesn't really sort of come up.
5: We
1: found that when we asked Dr. Kim Talbert the same question we had asked Dr. Kowalski about how she felt about the Anthropocene, we got a slightly different answer, It was eye-opening for us to realize that not all humans respond in the same way to the idea of the Anthropocene due to their unique histories and experiences.
0: Here's Native Studies
3: professor and Sisseton Wapitan Oyate citizen, Kim Talbert. Our way of life was already almost completely ended, right? And Indigenous people are post-apocalyptic, so why are we going to get all freaked out about the Anthropocene? I mean, it's not like we're not going to have real biophysical and material and cultural ramifications, but we've already, in a sense, faced that. Um, So it makes more sense for us to see this as a yet another kind of moment of crisis in a long series of moments of crisis.
1: Here's our friend Kaylee, whose own experiences echo Dr. TallBears.
4: So when I came to grad school, I thought I would be, like, challenged. I thought I would learn a lot, and I was really excited uh, for this opportunity. But what I wasn't expecting was to be constantly confronted with um, the, <laughs> the intergenerational trauma that I experienced, and that really was unaddressed that I tried to not think about because it's really hard to be constantly thinking about oh yeah okay so 90 percent of my indigenous relatives were like murdered Uh, so it's really a bizarre thing to always come into um (laughs) to come into contact with every time we're talking about something in regards to the Anthropocene and to be reduced down to such terms like the orbis spike and I'm like oh the orbis spike when ninety percent of Indigenous people died in uh, in in North America on Turtle Island, and so I've been writing a lot based on how things make me feel, because I recognize that like if I'm if I can't come to terms with this and I, I can't think through this, there's no way I'm going to be able to continue on moving through my life. I'll just be stuck in that hurt. So a lot of Grad school for me, which I was not expecting, <laughs> has been kind of trying to learn and heal and think through um, what this means. And so anything that resonates with me, I, like, jump on. So I know we talked about, like, the post-apocalyptic stress syndrome. And I was just like, yeah, that is is what Indigenous people have gone through. Like, we've gone through an apocalypse. That is a really good word for it, and that's where we're living now. And, yeah, so it's just weird to be here and be like, okay, well, I'm I'm still living, and I'm still here, and then here's the Anthropocene, and, like, we have 12 years to fix it, and then we—then <laughs> that's it. So it's just kind of like, okay, <laughs> throw another thing on the pile that I'm trying to, like, think about.
3: I, although I wouldn't have called it that, I've been aware of it my whole life. I mean, I've been aware of settler exploitation and attempts to wipe out Indigenous life ways. I was raised in a very politically conscious family with a lot of oral history passed down from the Dakota War, which reconfigured our entire world. I mean, that that narrative of that war was is like a new origin narrative, that, that um, it fundamentally changed Dakota peoplehood. Um, and that's at the beginning of the reservation era, right and the end of the kind of life before that. I don't generally, uh, because I've been aware of this my whole life since I can remember, I mean, I remember becoming conscious about history and politics at about the age of four. I, I distinctly remember that. 1972, the American Indian movement's going on. I knew who Vine Deloria Jr. was. I remember that's the year I began to know things about politics um, and that's because of my mom. I mean, I remember as a kid feeling flabbergasted and, you know, really shocked and sad and angry. And, you know, at this stage, it's rare that I feel those things viscerally because I've spent so long knowing that that's the state of the world. So, which is probably a good place to be as a professor, right? Because your students don't necess- aren't haven't necessarily gotten to the place where they can have a, a quiet intensity to their interrogation. I've also been told I have a quiet intensity about my analyses of things. Um, That's not to say I'm not a believer in the dispassionate person is more rational. I don't agree with that. It's a little difficult sometimes if you're in a, in a space of severe emotional distress, like that's a productive space to be in. But in order to get a, to a space of that's it, I think that's a necessary place to get to on your way to a nuanced analysis, you have to go through that. I think that's important. It's not, it's not not legitimate. But I don't think you always stay in that place either. It's not often that I feel heartbroken or sickened by the devastation. Although every once in a while, I see a film or hear a talk or get a glimpse into what I would have felt about these things 20 or 30 years ago and it's just that when you've been exposed to that for so long you kind of get a bit of a bit of emotional distance and you're in that place i talked about that i think is a productive analytical place which is mostly where i want to be but um but i haven't completely left the the rawness behind so do you think that feeling in some ways is a source of that productivity it's 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 there in a way where it still produces um a sort of passionate intellectual engagement. It's never going to go away that much where I won't have a passionate intellectual engagement with this stuff.
1: This devastation is not new. Destabilization of Earth's systems is the result of a long history of loss.
0: And resistance.
1: The genocide of indigenous peoples on this continent is entangled with the pillaging of cedars and the slaughter of bison. It hurts. And if we call it the Anthropocene, it hurts more. One big problem with the Anthropocene is that it makes you want to hate yourself for being human.
0: But the Anthropocene is the epoch of humans, and it includes climate change and mass extinction, which are awful. So humans must be awful, right?
1: It only takes a bit of digging in some rich black earth and tending to plants to understand that restorative agriculture that builds soil health is a great example of how not to be destructive.
0: Now we'll hear from writer and thinker Stephen Jenkinson.
5: So I think that's what's going on. That's what's mobilizing amongst people your age, the idea that self-hatred and, and uh, misanthropy are conditions of real conscience and real alertness and real having come to an awakeness. And I'd like to counter that by suggesting that that's exactly what they aren't. I'm not saying it's not understandable. I'm just saying that in a time where we're in, in you know some considerable trouble, you are no spiritual warrior by virtue of being you know, hateful of all things human.
0: Rather than feeling guilty for benefiting most from these structures, we can grieve, take responsibility, acknowledge we benefited, and then leverage our privilege to address the fundamental structural problems that generate that suffering and devastation. In the words of Charles Eisenstein, quote, Personally or politically, to blame moral failings for the horrifying predicament of people and planet is a dangerous error that diverts attention away from systemic and ideological causes. We live in a system, an ideology, and as a result probably a repressed psychology that allow us to feel only sporadically. The system numbs us, and it also depends on our numbness."
1: But what are those institutions that are severing our relations? One of the most obvious is capitalism. We inhabit and are organized within an economic system fundamentally based on exploitation of the poor and the non-human world. This encourages us to dull our empathy and to operate, to devalue consideration of others in favor of maximum profits.
0: Western, colonial science asks us to be dispassionate and objective when we study, whether it's entomology or extinction. Science tends to abstract, isolate, and distance the observer from the observed, rendering everything studied into an object. Science thus denies agency to anything not human, a perception radically different from the sciences of diverse indigenous peoples, which knows that willful, conscious, mysterious life exists beyond us.
1: And it's not just the institutions of science. In Western colonial philosophy, and in the foundations of culture and institutions today, emotions are still seen as interfering with the proper functioning of reason. Other than other than not thinking about it, yeah. are there any other ways maybe you do or maybe you should yeah. process this information?
2: Oh, well, I'm probably pretty suppressed emotionally. I don't really, I mean, I'm a philosopher. So I'm not, I don't know a lot about healthy emotional outlets for my own issues. Yeah, it might be true that one of the reasons why we have difficulty dealing or responding to the Anthropocene is because we talk about it in terms of the intellect, in terms of facts or reasons, but we don't talk about it in terms of expression of emotion about it in order to speak about things intellectually or scientifically we often have to assume a form of detachment from the thing we speak about so that we can be objective and neutral if we are being ideal about it which is of course not really actually possible Um, and that takes a lot of training and a lot of discipline which is kind of sick actually sometimes philosophers and scientists may actually lack that kind of emotional literacy to do the thing that maybe actually would Um, speak to the core of the human being in a way that would be really quite inspirational or motivational or powerful or whatever it is that emotions do.
1: But wait, the diligent scientist protests. We can't let emotions cloud our scientific objectivity or academic integrity.
0: We are not advocating scientists or philosophers give up their rigor, nor their attention to bias. We are asking that we attend even more closely to our inevitable bias to recognize that objectivity is an impossible deal and that the demonization of personality and emotions for a dispassionate intellectual understanding of more than human life as object has done more to serve the exploitation of the living world than it has to preserve, protect, or heal. For all the scientists' faults, the message they send rings true.
2: The Paris Agreement, it is about staying under 2 degrees Celsius warming compared to the pre-industrial level, aiming for one and a half degrees. This is the IPCC scenarios, and you know that as business as usual, we're heading towards four degrees Celsius, average global temperature by the end of this century, a point we haven't been in for the past four million years. Even if we deliver on Paris, we cannot exclude losing the coral reefs on planet Earth.
1: History can never be made right, and geological time reminds us that the past is not over. That history is not just in our minds as memory, but accumulating in rock and ocean and atmosphere. It's there, it's real, and it is characterized by huge loss.
0: Western colonial society has an obsession with ascent, growth, and positivity. This obsession with light and white as good is racist and anemic, missing blood and roots in the deep dark earth. We can choose to descend to allow those difficult emotions space to breathe and to stimulate creation.
1: Grief is not a numbing, but it's opposite, a deep and visceral recognition of our existence as this world in all her pain and beauty.
0: How do we cope with this knowledge? We can share the entangled injustice and the grief we feel in our stories, our philosophies, our art, protests, and songs. Accepting the wild invitation of grief to love, to reconnect with the breathing, emotive, disappearing worlds beyond the human realm will require feeling the pain that's out there.
1: And perhaps this will allow us to take on the action necessary or at the least, taking action with others who understand will help us digest our feeling authentically.
4: So other than talking with you all in conversations and having that with others, uh, I really think that uh, taking some sort of action is helpful. And whether that is like engaging in a protest or... Um, helping to organize a political campaign to specifically just journaling and doing self reflection like you can sit and feel those bad feelings you can sit and feel those emotions that are um, being expressed uh in class and that kind of come up and then you can write about it and reflect on that and that to me feels like I'm taking action to like put down on paper what it is that I'm feeling and like we're talking about the Anthropocene kind of naming that and expressing that and working through it um, I think is a one-way I could.
0: But why act if our small actions aren't going to make the big difference? Why do anything but watch Netflix if turning this big old ship around seems utterly impossible?
1: How do we balance a deep recognition of the true scale of the horror that we are inheriting without becoming debilitated and depressed and fatalistic. We don't want to spread false hope. We accept that there are no easy fixes, no saving the planet or stopping climate change. However, this doesn't mean that we should just give up. In the words of Stephen Jenkinson,
5: First of all, I don't have any hope myself. I found it to be enormously useful to be able to proceed without any hope at all. Hmm. That doesn't mean I'm hopeless, either, because that's the same side of the same coin. I'm simply saying I'm not trafficking either one of those things, hope or hopelessness. So my way of proceeding is free of hope, you could say at this point in the proceedings, and that I don't need a sense that everything's going to work out in the end to mobilize me on behalf of a better day.
0: We were... Impressed when we heard the words of a climate scientist who wasn't afraid to talk about her emotions. These are the words of Kate Marvel, a climate scientist with NASA.
1: Quote, As a climate scientist, I am often asked to talk about hope. Audiences want to be told that everything will be all right in the end. Climate change is bleak, the organizers always say. So tell us a happy story. Give us hope. The problem is... I don't have any. I have no hope that these changes can be reversed. But the opposite of hope is not despair. It is grief. Even while resolving to limit the damage we can mourn. And here, the sheer scale of the problem provides a perverse comfort. We are in this together. The swiftness of the change, its scale and inevitability binds us together. We need courage, not hope. Grief, after all, is the cost of being alive. We are all fated to live our lives shot through with sadness, and we are not worth less for it. Courage is the resolve to do well without the assurance of a happy ending." End quote.
0: Perhaps this isn't a new realization for those people who have already faced the end of their worlds. Not only is it important to realize that, yes, the situation is bad, it's also important to realize it's been bad for a really long time for a whole lot of people, especially the colonized, the enslaved, the imprisoned, and the impoverished. And despite that, they have resisted and persisted and insisted on
3: continuing to care for
0: each other, as Kim Talbert taught us.
3: I don't have any vision for what it's going to look like i'm more concerned with um us feeding our friends and if your friend is about to get thrown out of their house giving them a place to live i'm really about alleviating people's suffering i think we need to start doing more of that we need to feed people we need to not criminalize them for being homeless we already have Uh, climate refugees we already have victims of famine a lot of our contemporary wars are probably related to climate change as Mm -hmm. well right as well with that caravan coming you need to meet them and meet them with food and blankets and try to find people places to live I think that's important so Mm
1: -hmm. and would you say similarly for like like interspecies relations like just doing what you can
3: for yeah displacement and all that that's going on well, you can always lessen suffering. There's su- all kinds of suffering around you, right? Yeah. You can mm-hmm. always do something to lessen some, somebody or some, somebody's suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll use that term for animals, too.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: I think that's really important. And I think that's so important
0: in trying to, like, psychologically or emotionally navigate the scale of mm-hmm. um, geological mm-hmm. epochs and climate mm-hmm. change. We made this podcast over a year and a half ago, well before COVID-19. Then, we were perhaps afraid, even panicked, that global society was going about business as usual as if this onrushing wave of extinction weren't happening.
1: Listening to it now, in this time of heightened anxieties and suffering, when the fragility of both individual people, our parents and grandparents, and the precarity of our entire society is far more visible, Kim TallBear's words make so much sense we can always take action to love and care for the vulnerable, for each other and for other beings.
0: Thank you for listening to this two-part series about the Anthropocene. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a volunteer-run production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 Territory. You heard the voices of scientist Johan Rockström, professors Kim Tallbear and Nathan Kowalski, our classmate, friend, and all-around rock star Kaylee Weeb, and we have been your hosts, Dylan
1: and Amanda. Again, we would like to express our appreciation for fellow anthropod Charlotte Thomason, who edited down this series from an unwieldy two hours into two sleek half-hour episodes.
0: Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at terrainforma. And take care of each other, fellow anthropos.